there's the message for this morning. Uh, I'm just going to kind of reiterate that a little bit. But uh, man, what a fun Sunday so far to, um, one, just all be together. As Pastor Nick pointed out, everybody who's attending this morning at ABC is in this room. Uh, kids, babies, uh, it's just a fun family Sunday. I love hearing all the, the noises, um, all the little baby amens um, throughout the service. So that's fun. Uh, I'm going to keep the message a little bit shorter today um, just because we've got another fun thing uh, to close our service out with, with a few baptisms. Uh, but we're going to talk about some of those questions that the kids uh, answered in that video. We're actually going to be teaching, we're breaking from our 1 Corinthians uh, deep study, and we're teaching the kids' curriculum from what they studied last week. So if you're sitting next to a child and you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask them and they can help you out. Um, but we're going to be talking about uh, God's masterpiece. That's the title of uh, their lesson, the title of our message uh, today. And so what I want to do is uh, take a quick moment to pray over the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and then we'll dive right into it. So if you would pray with me this morning. God, we love you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for giving us, just again, this chance to be together as a family in the faith. Um, you, know, you call us to do just that, and what a symbol of that this morning, um, as all families are here worshiping you together. Um, God, I pray that you would just open your word up to us, uh, make it clear uh, what you have to say, um, so that uh, the kids in here can hear, the adults in here can hear, and I just thank you, Lord, that your, your Bible, your word is so good, um, that whether we are hearing a, a, a a truth that, that if uh, you know, a child can understand all the way to if we're in our 90s and have been following Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years, that, that your truth is good no matter what. It knows no age. And so I just pray that as we walk through this study, Lord, you remind us of that and help us to know you more deeply and equip us, God, to make you known uh, more effectively as we leave this place. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Amen. There is a, uh, a unique study that came out um, a while back. It's a study that Lifeway uh, Christian Research um, put out, and it was a study asking, it is a survey, asking people um, where they find their meaning of life, right? Because that's the question that all people are trying to answer in one way or another. And so they put out this huge survey, um, and they allowed multiple answers, uh, but here is the, the statistical breakdown of what they found. Again, this is factors for determining uh, purpose or meaning in life, which they define to mean finding your identity, uh, finding right community, and finding purpose in terms of your contribution uh, to society or to the world as a whole. Um, and so here is just the top, I think it's the top 15 different answers that they came up with. And again, you can answer multiple times, so we're going to go over 100%, just a forewarning. Uh, the top thing, 73% uh, said role within their family. The role within their family. 50, 57% said the good that they do. 51% said what they have achieved. 49% said their role as a friend. 44% their interests or hobbies. 39% what they have endured in their life, 35% their talents, 32% their job, 29% their education, 26% their country of birth, 18% their political views, 17% their looks, 16% their ethnic group, 
12% their sexuality, and 7% their favorite sports team. Uh, and as some of those percentages get down there, um, you're thinking, well, that's not a lot of people. Well, just to put it in perspective, 7% of the U.S. population is roughly 23 million people. Um, and so that's 23 million people say that their favorite sports team has a factor in determining the meaning of their life, right? which is pretty wild right? when you think about it. But if not that, then what is it? Right, and that's the question that we hope to answer today because all the things that I just named there, again, none of them are innately bad in and of themselves. They're all things that if you're following Jesus, you know, I hope that you, uh, you, know, have, you know, know your role within your family and find uh, joy in it as it relates to your relationship with God. And, and same with your interests and hobbies. In our membership class, we just talked about how God wants to leverage those to, to serve his kingdom, whether it's within the context of this body or to be used outside these walls. And so these aren't innately bad things, but they are not the source themselves of where we find our meaning in this life. And the two problems that all of those things have, the reason why they can't do that is because one, these things will change throughout our life, right? So if you bank your, the meaning of your life on any one of these things, these things are going to change. For example, if you are a uh, person that, that finds it from your favorite sports team, we'll take college football, for example. For those who are college football fans, you know that we're uh, three weeks away from uh, opening weekend. Um, and if you are, let's just say you're an Alabama fan, right? I'm not an Alabama fan, but Alabama has been the most successful uh, college football team over the last 20 years, we'll say, and I don't know how many championships they've won, maybe you do, we'll just say six, right? Six out of 20 is not a very high percentage of the time for you to find good, positive meaning in your life. So even if you are a fan of the best sports team, if that's a de sole determinant of where you find meaning in your life, it is going to fall short because it changes, right? No team wins every year. Same with everything on this list. None of it is constant. None of it is un changing, right? They're all semi-circumstantially based, semi-based on people who change, right? But they all do change. And the second reason why none of these can uphold the weight of, of supporting our entire, the meaning of our life or determining the meaning of our life is that none of these things give complete uniqueness either. Meaning if, again, we'll use college football, if you're an Alabama fan, you're not the only Alabama fan, right? And so if that's the only sole source of the meaning of your life, how does it separate you from other people? It doesn't. And all these things, there are other people who can experience the exact same thing as you. And so it lacks, one, uh, a steadiness, if you will. And then two, uh, it, it lacks uniqueness, all these things that were mentioned. And so what we're going to do is look at something that is totally unchangeable, but also provides total uniqueness as the source from where we are going to find our meaning of life, to determine our meaning of life. And we're going to do that by looking at a few different um, passages in Scripture. It'll be Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, so if you have your Bibles out, I invite you to turn there. We'll also jump at the end to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at what is the, or what ought to be the determinant of our life, because the Bible does teach that there is true meaning in life that is totally unchangeable and totally unique. It actually teaches, as the title of this message suggests, that we are God's masterpiece. That we are God's masterpiece. So we're going to look at this idea of being God's masterpiece in three different conditions, we'll call it. 
Uh, the first is a created masterpiece. That'll be the first point. Uh, the second point will be a rejected masterpiece. And then the third point will be a redeemed masterpiece. So we're going to look at what it means to be a masterpiece in those three conditions. And we're going to start with what it means to be a created masterpiece. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a lot of text. Uh, so again, I encourage you to have your Bibles open with me as we do. Um, but Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, says this. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. That is a powerful passage of Scripture speaking to how you and I were created. And you know the, the most interesting thing I find from this passage is the dust. The dust. Right, if you weren't listening carefully, maybe you skipped over that word or maybe you didn't hear it. But towards the end of those verses, it says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And you know what I find interesting about that is that God had just created the heavens and the earth. Um, and so what was the purpose then for dust? Right? Not dirt, right, which can provide, you know, be soil to provide plants, but, but dust. If you look up the definition of dust, you'll find something along the lines of waste particles. All right, so God just created a perfect world. Why would there be or how would there be or what, for what purpose would there be waste particles? Right? Surely there must have been intention. You could argue that the dust was the lowest of all of God's creation. It was the waste of everything else God made. And out of that, he chose to create you and I. Well, what might the significance of that be? Right, that he would choose to, to breathe his breath into dust, creating you and I. Well, we'll see in just a moment, because that's just our starting point, right? We start at dust as the lowest of the low, and somehow we go from dust to the prize of God's creation. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, which say this, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. From this text, we see that God in creating us 
again, from the lowest of the love that the world has to offer, creates us as his prize over all creation, one with identity, we were made in God's image, uh, two with purpose, which is for God, right? Our identity is in God, our purpose is for God, which is to work and rule the earth, which we see Adam doing even as he's naming the animals as God brings them to him. And lastly, uh, community with God and with others. And so those three questions that kind of kind of add to the, the, the meaning of life, community, uh, purpose in what we do, and identity in who we are, all answered right here as God creates you and I. He creates us for those things as his masterpiece. But what, again, takes us from the dust to this idea of masterpiece is God's very breath, meaning with God, we are a masterpiece. But without God, we are absolutely nothing. With God, we have identity. With God, we have purpose. With God, we have right, right community. And we find meaning in those things. Without God, we are no better than the waste particles of this earth. That's, what, that's the significance right there. All we must do then is continually breathe him in and breathe him out. Right? Breathe him in by knowing him and consuming him in his word and in community and in personal reading time. And as we, as we just seek to know him in all of creation and all the things he's made. Right? But also breathing him out, proclaiming his name in our workplaces and amongst our, our family and friends and amongst lost people. Because the God we serve, the one who created not just you and I, but all people deserves to be praised. And all those people who are searching for meaning in all the wrong places deserve to know. Or let, me, let me rephrase, they don't deserve to know. right? But God's desire is for them to know. And so we not only breathe God in as we consume Him and get to know Him more deeply, but we breathe Him out over His creation so that they too might know who God is. So this is how you and I have been created. We've been created as this masterpiece. And all we've got to do is rightfully breathe God in and breathe Him out. But do we do that? No. We don't. At least not perfectly. And so what then happens? We're a created masterpiece by God, but what do we choose to do with that? We reject it. Leads us to the second condition of being a masterpiece, which is a rejected masterpiece. Let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, which say, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, from, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you, eat, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman, said, or the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Right, God who is, the God who 
had always existed, the only God who had always existed, the God who created all things, the God who then for all of his created things set the standard of goodness by which they ought to follow, which in this case was really not that many rules, one of which though was not to eat the fruit from the garden, uh, which again, in obedience to God, we are acknowledging and, and submitting to and, 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 and learning of what it means to be a masterpiece because we're the one created by him, so surely he's the one that defines, sets the terms for, for, for who we are and how we best ought to live in this world. And we rejected it. We rejected it. We sinned, therefore rejecting God. Let me just be clear that Adam and Eve were not just the two bad apples that ruined it for the rest of us, right? But rather, they are symbolic of the decision that any one of us would have made and evidentially have made by sinning ourselves in our present day lives also. And so we've sinned, therefore, separating ourselves from God. And notice how the serpent tempted the woman. First, he questioned the author of the meaning of her life. Right? He said, did God really say that? Right? He questioned the one who dictated the terms and, and gave your life meaning. He questioned him. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the serpent questioned the very meaning of her life that God set as well. So he questioned the one that gave our life meaning and questioned that meaning itself, which then led the woman to commit the sin. And look at the consequence of this. Right? We can see that, that our masterpiece that, that God has created us to be has been rejected by, again, not just Adam and Eve, but by all people. And unfortunately, there's a consequence to that. And we see that in the, the conversations or the three responses that God has to the serpent, to the woman, and then to the man that follow in chapter 3. Look at the three different conversations to the serpent. God says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. From this we learn that the only people the enemy has power over are those who are without God's presence. Right? Notice what it says this, the serpent is to eat for the rest of its life. The dust of the earth. What are you and I uh, equivalent to according to Genesis chapter 2 without God's breath breathed into us? The dust of the earth. Like, the enemy has no power over those who God has resolved to hold on to. But those who have rejected and are living according to their own desires, their own flesh, they are subject to the enemy's devices, to the enemy's schemes. But that's just the response to the serpent. Look what he says to the woman. To the woman he says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children and and with painful effort, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So a life of, of meaning and purpose that was just handed over to us, we, we did nothing to, we, we didn't exist, we did nothing to ask God to create us, to, we had no say over how he made us, he could have made us to, to just be sufferable beings, but instead he made us to give us a purpose, community, and, and identity, to give us a meaning in our life, and we rejected that and instead we chose to search for it on our own and in God's response to the woman essentially what he's saying to us is that that's going to be a painful process 
That's going to be a painful search. Every Christian I know who, who became saved later on in their life and had a season of searching and trying to find it in their job or in their, their, their passions or desires or in just worldly things, it's been painful. Right? And maybe not right at once, right? Maybe there's pleasure in it initially, right? But eventually all roads lead to a painful, painful end, whether in this life or in the next. The third response is to the man. To the man, he says, The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. First, I want to point out the, the beginning of God's response to the man he says, the ground is cursed because of you. Right? There's a common misconception. We've talked about this as a church, but there's a common misconception that we're bad and we sin right, because the world is bad and the world is sinful. Right? When in reality, it's we who are bad and we who are sinful that make the world bad and sinful. Does that make sense? Right? We're not sinful because the world's sinful. The world is sinful because we're sinful. Right? We are the source of all that is bad in the world. And I don't mean any one person in particular, but collectively, humanity is responsible. All people are responsible. Their sinful desires, their rejecting of God and God's purpose over their life is what leads to all that is bad in the world. Right? It's not God. Right? It's, it's you and I who have chosen to reject God that leads to all the bad. And then secondly, as a result of this, What's it say there towards the end? For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Right, again, you were once nothing, and you will return to nothing. And it's actually worse than that. It'd be one thing if we just ceased to exist, and that was it. No harm, no foul. Um, but we'll actually spend an eternity under the fullness of God's wrath. Right, because we have to pay the penalty of the crime we've committed. Right, it's not just a tangible crime or, a, or a, a finite crime that deserves a finite punishment. It is an infinite crime, therefore deserving an infinite punishment, which is eternity under the fullness of God's wrath. That's, so we talked about what it means to reject our, our, the fact that we are a masterpiece created by God. And those are the consequences of rejecting the fact that we are a masterpiece created by God. So if we stop there, it's a really sad story. Um, but luckily for us, the three conditions of being a masterpiece don't stop there. There's the third condition, um, which is a redeemed masterpiece. We create it as a masterpiece to no doing of our own. But then to the doing of our own, we rejected that masterpiece. But then luckily for us, fortunately for us, we have been redeemed. We are a redeemed masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And that word workmanship can also be translated to mean masterpiece. For we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. 
And I think it's interesting and it's important that he says created in Christ Jesus, not necessarily created by Christ Jesus. We've already seen we've been created. And again, God could have just left it there. I created you. I gave you the opportunity and you ruined it. We've been created in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus acknowledges the redeeming efforts that Christ made on the cross for us, which restores our identity, our purpose, and our community, which we see in this verse alone. First, we see that our identity has been restored. He calls us once again a masterpiece. You should see some of the words that God uses for for his people in the Old Testament for the sins that they've committed. Uh, He calls the different people groups at times, he calls them the, the wash basin or the essentially the, the trash, right, because of their sin. There's some negative words used, right, for, for God's people because of the sinfulness that they have enacted upon him and participated in towards him. But here, he reminds us that, that in Christ Jesus, right, created by Christ Jesus and then redeemed in Christ Jesus, we can once again be a masterpiece, right, God's masterpiece, which means to know that we are made in his image, right? And then secondly, in Christ Jesus restored our purpose, right? He says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But again, our good works don't earn us being able to say we're a masterpiece, right? It's because God has just made us one that we then want to do good works for him, which is primarily making his name known, Right? Knowing him deeply and making him his name known amongst every part of the earth. Right? That's, our, that's our purpose. Is that right there? To make God known to the uttermost parts of the earth because he deserves to be glorified. He could, he could snap his fingers and just happen to be chosen to use you and I to make that end goal become a reality. And then lastly, Christ Jesus restores our community. Notice the the now or the, the, the notice the language here he says, For we are his workmanship, in which God prepared a time for us to do. It's collective. He's speaking in this letter to the church of Ephesus to a body of believers, meaning not only is your relationship with Christ being restored as, as an image bearer of him, your efforts being restored to, to use that image bearer status you have to make him known to other people, but you also have your, rest, you have your relationship with your community restored, which is particularly in the context of the local church, so that you can do that together. You can do that with one another. Church, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. God made us. He lovingly made us. And if you think about it, so many times when we talk about the fact that God loves us, um, we start with the crucifixion. We start with Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins. And perhaps that's the greatest act of love demonstrated by God. But it's not where it begins. You realize that we did nothing to be created. Right? God loved us so much that he made us. And he didn't just make us. He made us in his likeness. He made us with a purpose to serve him. And he made us to do that in community with one another. And you and I all have chosen to throw all that away, to seek after worldly things that are not nearly as good as God, that offer finite, temporary uh, 
partial satisfaction in, in our identity. There's an identity crisis among all people in the world today. There's a purpose crisis among all people in the world today. In a community, all people are striving for those things, and God has given them to us, and we've rejected them. And all we have to do to find it restored is by seeking Jesus. Is by going back to the one who created us that way in the first place who offers restoration, who offers redemption. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to celebrate. Um, we're going to have our time of invitation in just a few minutes. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment to celebrate uh, three individuals who have kind of gone through these three conditions of being God's masterpiece. They've acknowledged being created that way by God. They've recognized their sinfulness and, and separation and rejecting of God. But they also have acknowledged that God has redeemed them by and only by the blood of Jesus. And so we have three individuals that are going to be baptized this morning. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to just transition right to that here now. I'm going to pray. Um, and then we're going to have the baptisms, and then we're going to have an invitation to follow. Uh, my prayer is that we would just joyfully celebrate, uh, man, three lives restored in Christ. Again, a restored purpose, restored identity, restored community uh, this morning. And so I'm going to pray, invite you to pray with me, and then we'll, we'll close for a time of invitation once they finish.